If you open up your Bibles to the New Testament, we continue our study through the Lord's ministry. And uh, once again, we have a lesson before us that has three different accounts throughout the, uh, the Synoptic Gospels. I'll give you those and read those, and then we'll get started on the message. Mark 9, verses 38 through 50 is John Mark's account. Matthew 18, verses 6 through 14 is Matthew's account. <clears throat> and Luke covers what he covers in this entire event in Luke 9, verse 49 and verse 50. Uh, I'm sure many will choose Luke's account to be their favorite. Uh, I tend to do the same, but there's a lot of details of Mark and Matthew that we should cover as well. So we'll start with Mark's account. We're looking at the discourse on occasions of stumbling. Discourse on occasions of stumbling. And again, Mark 9, starting in verse 38, we read, And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is in, is in on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ... Verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Uh, I want you to recall, and I know it's been probably four weeks since we had last done this study, but recall the child that was used as an example for humility in the previous portion of our study, uh, and you'll see the reference that's been being made here throughout these three accounts, really. And then he says, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. When, where the worm dieth not, the fire, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offendeth thee, or offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter, enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell. Enter the fi into the fire that never shall be quenched. <clears throat> and we see again, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, and if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will, we seize, will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. And just some notes that I've written in the margins here uh, concerning Mark's account. When it, when it talks about the hand offending and the eye offending, it's lit, Jesus has literally given us direction on how we should handle our worship of idols, how we should handle the sin of idol worship. We see three different times reference to the worm where the worm dieth not and the fire not quenched. Uh, this is like a place on the map. This is the same place being described all three times. I've got written here like the fallen, uh, like the fallen mind of man. It now gives birth to a physical nature, worm, that slowly devours both body and soul. And John Trapp wrote that stomach worms are often killed by salt. Salt, that's referenced here at the end of Mark's account, is something that must be must purify what it's put upon, or what it's put upon will perish. Uh, so a very interesting lesson on salt there in Mark's account. Now if you turn over to Matthew 18, we'll see Matthew's account. Matthew 
Matthew 18, starting in verse 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better to, for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And then if you're looking at the outline, you'll see the remainder of Matthew's account is underlined. This is something uh, original to Matthew uh, that I want to bring attention to. He says here in this event, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels, angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How thank ye, if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And then Luke's account, Luke 9, just verses 49 and 50. It says here, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Just a few points. The first one, the admonition in Mark's account. Secondly, the warning in Matthew's account. And thirdly, the parable that we find in Matthew's account as well. The first thing for us to look at is this admonition in Mark's account. And it's really rare, honestly, that the synoptic gospels, which are called as such because they are parallel to one another, they line up really well with one another. It's really rare that we find an, an admonition peculiarly given by one writer and not at least addressed in the other. And in this case, we have from Matthew and from Mark something original to each writer, but concerning the same event. The admonition in Mark's account, which we see really in verses 38 through 41 there at the beginning, is also referenced by Luke in Luke 9, loving those outside our fellowship. I've always thought this text was interesting, uh, and, and Rebecca could tell you the first sermon I ever preached was out of Luke 9, but it wasn't on this subject. The idea of loving those outside of our fellowship, it, it's difficult, but if someone didn't do it, I'd have never heard the gospel. I don't know about all, all you guys. It's probably different for many. Uh, and it's usually assumed different uh, in our situation. Uh, if your last name is Cockrell, you probably just always heard the truth. I'm sure that's the assumption that's been made. But if nobody ever loved outside of their fellowship, the gospel was never actually taken to every nation as the commission commands, uh, we'd be even smaller than we are today. Loving those outside our fellowship. John thought he would impress Jesus with his zeal. But Jesus lovingly rebuked him for his lack of love and discernment. Did the twelve think they were the only ones serving Jesus? Some more questions for us to add to our list. Had the nine who were left behind forgotten their failure to cast out the demon of the or cast the demon out of the boy when the other three were at the Mount of Transfiguration? How often we criticize others for success that we cannot attain ourselves. Verse 40 and, and, and also in Matthew 12, 30 together teach us the impossibility of neutrality when it comes to Jesus. 
It also teaches us that he hasn't fully revealed who the elect are. Even in this time, he had not told them of every person who would ever receive him. As a matter of fact, he gave instruction, did he not, as to what they were to do of houses that did not receive him. He gave them more information about those that would reject him than he actually gave of those who would receive him. Mark 9:40 for he that is not against us is on our part. Matthew 12:30 he that is not with me is against me and he that gathered uh, gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. There's two different different declarations. They're not uh, a rephrasing of the same statement. These are two different declarations here. He also teaches them to love the lost. And this ties in with forgiveness in, in a lot of ways. But we are to love the lost. You have to love the lost to give them the gospel. For someone to, uh, if you were trying to do anything else and you were spat upon and openly rejected in your action of doing it, you'd probably give up and walk away. But the Lord's commission and his commandment to us is to love the lost, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love those who despitefully use you, to give them the other cheek when they have slapped you on one side, to give them the uh, more when they've taken a little... Why? Why would he command for us to do such a thing? We're more than conquerors. Is that not what we want to claim and smote our breasts in a proud manner? We're more than conquerors. Why should we piddle with such things? With those who have rejected us, those who have accused us, those who have wrongly abused us, why should we be patient in such trials? That he be magnified. That's why. Loving the lost shows Jesus. It demonstrates Christ. He had to love the lost to die for any of them. He loved us while we were yet his persecutor. As you recall how he, uh, he addresses Saul. It's hard to kick against the pricks. Why dost thou persecute us me? He's loving on one who has rejected him, who has outwardly chased and chastised those who have followed Christianity. He turned to those who, uh, re who at that point were referred to as following the way as though it was a plague that he was to extinguish. This is our Lord's longest and most awesome warning about future punishment. If we are not serving others, as we see there in Mark 9, verse 35, we may cause others to stumble, as we see in verse 42, offend we may cause others to stumble if we are not serving them. And this might lead to their eternal condemnation. Now, it won't cause for the elect to be lost, but it will cause for a delay. It will cause for uh, absent blessings. It will cause for broken hearts and continued sadness. We must deal drastically with sin in our lives. And we must start with the sin in our own lives in addressing our laziness, our, our gluttony, our depraved nature that we, we call back to memory or to remembrance simply because we know it, not because we're slave to it. How sad is that, that someone who is freed from such things would willingly return to it? But such as we, that's what we do, the dog to the vomit. We go back because remember we remember how good it tastes the first time. We remember some sensual or flesh-like pleasures that we had that no longer has anything to offer us. We must deal drastically with sin in our lives, both for our sake and the sake of others. For the fires of hell are real. The fires of hell are everlasting. And we'll see a little bit more of this when we get to Matthew's warning in the second point.
The image here is of the garbage dump in the valley of Hinnom, outside Jerusalem, where the waste was burned by fire and eaten by worms. This is the reference that the Lord is continually making here. Uh, and if you'll patiently bear with me, I'll, I'll, I'll lay that out for you. Before this garbage or, or this waste was, uh, uh, before it was really referred to as waste, this was way worse than just trash. Uh, this was not a society of perishables like we have now, McDonald's cups and burger wrappers and so on and so forth. This waste is more of a worship of Moloch type waste. Uh, much like the, uh, the, the rags, the filthy rag reference of our righteousness being as filthy rags, and uh, many probably remember that being revealed at some point or another to you as being menstrual rags. These aren't just dirty, oily rags. They're a little bit worse than that. This is also a little bit worse than waste. The, the worship that was referenced here with Moloch were uh, heating up these statues or these, these podiums, these places of, of false worship, and them offering up their children on these scalding hot statues, or, or I'm not really sure what they would have been made of, but their children would essentially begin to melt as soon as they were set upon it. And this waste is the waste that's being referenced here, that's being eaten of worms. Isaiah 66, verse 24 says, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. You think the Lord does not notice abortion? That the Lord has turned away from uh, the mistreatment of children? He has definitely not. This makes reference to the sinfulness that was gotten rid of by King Josiah. Consider 2 Kings 23, verse 10. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. This is a very serious thing that he's making reference to here. Let me go back and read Mark 9 to you now that we have that understanding of what he's referring to. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offendeth thee, cut it off. This is better, he says. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offendeth thee, cut it off. This is better, he says, than to enter into, it is better to enter into life halt than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. This is better, beloved. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And I've read it three times, but I want to point out a specific word to you here in what he's repeating. Where their worm. He's not saying the worm as if it's only one. And he's not saying T-H-E-R-E. -E. He's not referencing a place in this statement. He's re referencing a, a, a personal possession, if you will, of this worm. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Having purged away idols, Josiah then could concentrate on reestablishing the true worship of Jehovah. It's not enough to tear down. It, we must also build up. This place, and I hope you're able to picture it, because I, I 
super uncomfortable describing it any more than I already have. But this place of baby body parts, of thrown away humanity, this stench, this rot, this bloody nastiness was a picture in real time of eternal punishment. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I mean, just, we've had three miscarriages. And I can't even imagine ever having the idea that those are throwaway lives. Or somehow pleasing to some deity for me to place my child upon some burning surface. It's a picture of my wickedness. It's a picture of your wickedness. And then when the fun is over of this false worship, as these pieces are discarded into a pile, a wasteland, they have their reward. The Greek word for hell, Gehenna, comes from the Hebrew uh, word Hinnom, which is this valley that's being described here in Second Kings. Hell is a real place. And lost souls will suffer there forever. Think of this hell in this picture, in, the, in this light of the valley of, of Hinnom. The very foundation is of life discarded by man. That's what we did when we fell. We discarded, discarded holiness. We discarded pleasing the Lord. We discarded our, our value of what life truly was. Almost immediately. Can you imagine hell built upon such a thing? I, I've read recently of, of, uh, of storage buildings in Indiana where uh, doctors were harvesting these body parts of babies and selling them on some weird black market. We're not even creative enough to come up with new sins. These are ancient sins. May the Lord help us. Do we have a love for the lost or are we only concerned with being the greatest? This is a reference we see in, in these accounts as well. God's people would indeed be salted with fire. We see that in verse 49. They'd suffer persecution. And it is important that we have salt in ourselves or maintain true Christian character and integrity as we go through those trials. As Clark was saying during the break, that the weight of those trials, once, they, once they've fallen, and I'm not going to do it justice, brother. You're just going to have to teach at some point to do this right. But the weight of those trials, as we release them, as they hit the ground, it doesn't undo what we have grown uh, or how we've grown in experiencing those trials, the muscles that we've built and the experiences that we've had and the knowledge of Christ that we have gained. Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Simon Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16, 
Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ. Happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Have you ever thought, if God truly loved his people, and I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in the room who's ever thought about this, why does he even let us have a description of hell? Why, why would he even allow us to imagine such a place? And I don't know that our imaginations do it justice, to be honest with you. Uh, if, you think, if you've never thought of the Valley of Hindum like I've just described, then maybe this is the first time you've ever thought about it in this light. But why would he allow those he loves to hear of such a place if preserved forever, once saved, always saved, as the brother said earlier in a conversation, if preserved forever, why would he even allow us a description of a place that we shall never experience? And I believe it's to give us charge to get after the work that we have. Why would he tell us of the shame that Christ experienced? Because we're going to experience it too, and he's overcome the world. Be of good cheer. Why do we know about hell? So that there's an ignition to that match under my heel to get my feet going. Why is it so terrifying to the soul that we'll never experience it? Because we know how good he can be, how good he has been. We can only imagine how holy his wrath must be as well. He's only given to those who can handle it. And he's given it to them for a reason. I think of the, the missionary update letter that I, I read and announcements, and I won't give the name, but of all the things he's going through right now, I don't know that I'd handle it any better, but, but what if there's a doctor or a nurse or an ambulance driver, an EMT that needs to hear the gospel? And what if the only way they're ever going to hear it is if you get hit by a car? You'd probably never walk anywhere near a road again. You don't want to get hit by a car. But if we're faithful unto the Lord, we're going to give the gospel when we've been hit by the car to everybody we come in contact with. What if the only way the uh, anesthesiologist is going to hear about the gospel is if you somehow have to cross his path? You ever think about how hard it's going to be to cross the mortician's path? The funeral director's path? Those who only deal with the end of life? There are some that won't even cross my path until the end. Everything, every step ordained of God, every persecution, every trial, as salt purifying our testimony. Secondly, let us look at the warning in Matthew's account. And we spoke briefly last time of these little ones that Matthew references here. And, and I had mentioned before, it's not necessarily always children, children. Uh, John makes this reference a lot, and he's almost never referring to children, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the start of the text in Matthew, Jesus says, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is in Matthew 18, verse 3. 
This word converted is speaking of those turned around, and it is the concern by the end of our text that those who would present the gospel not be stumbling blocks to those still lost or still learning. And we're going to see a little bit more of this when we get into the Micah study next week as, uh, as they had preachers or prophets that were uh, basically delivering good time gospels, um, prosperity gospels, we're God's people, no harm can come unto us, and Micah has to address these things, and we're going to see that a lot over the next couple of weeks. But the entire passage warns us not to offend the little children, verse 6, not to despise the little children, verse 10, not to uh, uh, allow them to perish without Christ, verse 14, to allow any soldier to die unwarned or untrained. And it is a dangerous thing for adults or parents to cause children to stumble and miss the way of salvation, as we've seen of, of Isaac and Rebekah's household in our Genesis study. The Lord's will was still fulfilled. It still went exactly as it was supposed to, but none could go back over that chapter that we've been looking at over Wednesday nights and say, well, this was a godly household that feared the Lord. They tested the Lord. They helped the Lord, but there's not a lot of fear until the trembling on Isaac at the end. How important is it to have a good example at home? Many backslidden parents and worldly-minded adults will have much to answer for at the judgment. I pray they're not allowed one more moment, one more day, one more hour to think they're doing great. I'd rather be a parent thinking I'm struggling, but watching every step I take, watching every lesson I teach, than to think I've got this and lead them to hell. But we do that. Consider the millstone that we've made reference to. Turn over to Revelation 18. Again, only one. Revelation 18, verse 21. Sometimes the Thompson chain is more of a hindrance than a help because Revelation is about 300 pages before the end of your actual Bible in the Thompson chain. Revelation 18, starting in verse 21 and reading through 24, says, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down. And shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpets shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman or whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For by, the, by thy sorceries were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. It's not what we're teaching, but I can tell you from spending years in the Roman Catholic Church, I know what that's referencing to. This millstone, and there's, a, there's an image that's going to be in the February banner of what a millstone is, and, and you've seen it, even if you don't think you've seen it, you've probably seen it. Big stone looks like a wheel that the caveman invented. It ain't what the caveman invented. These wheels were pulled usually by, by donkeys, and they'd usually roll on top of one another, crushing grain. It's not something one person would, on the average, pick up and haul around. But leave no question. Something like that tied around your neck and tossed into the sea, you're going to chase after it pretty quick. You won't have much choice. The same danger is presented concerning the saints' testimony before the loss of this world, newly born again, as well as saints of foreign denominations. They're not going to fall 
as was referenced there in Revelation, they're going to be casteth. How detestable unto God is the harlot, as she's described there in Revelation. And these little ones, Jesus is not referencing, as I mentioned, just children, but the children of God, who are God's little children. And, and we know it from Matthew's account because he references that lost sheep. He's not referencing a lost baby. He's referencing one of his own that he's pursuing after. And here's some instruction from Brother John to prove it. And you can turn if you'd like. There's quite a few of them. But 1 John 2, 1, John writes, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2, 12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. These are those that belong to the Lord, those who've been forgiven. 1 John 2, 18, little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. And remember, this is during John's time. Read the seasons. 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. 1 John 3.7, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. 1 John 3.18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 4.4, 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 5.21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And you see here John's reference to the phrase little children is most definitely not speaking to just Zebediah and Nolan. It's speaking to the children of God. Those who have been called to this new thing, redeemed by Christ Jesus and his blood that we talked about this morning. It's tragic when we cause another believer to stumble. I don't have the time to read these two accounts, but uh, maybe start your 2023 journey here by reading Romans 14, verses 1 through 23. And 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. And understand that if you're here and born again, you have a charge to not lead these little children, these babes in Christ, or these little children that don't have an understanding of Christ to a point of stumbling. Romans 14, 1 through 23. And again, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. The Lord says, It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Many of us have probably heard that phrase often enough through Bible study that it maybe uh, it's not as jarring or as jolting to hear it. But imagine, imagine going to such an such a event, such a ceremony, as one would stand and say, these things are on my heart. And the men would be led to say, okay, we're going to grab a millstone. We're going to tie it around your neck. We're going to cast it into the sea because we're told that that will be better for you than to allow you to act on these things, to lead a little one astray. No one's going to say, I feel led to lead a little one astray because this is what Christ says is better for them. And the point of it all is to turn away from such things, to, dive, to, to, to in, invest in heavy concern over such things, over omission and commission type sins that lead others astray, that you take serious what you say about the Bible. You take serious your use of terms such as the Lord's name. 
Well, we know the phrase, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, but that doesn't necessarily mean just in slander and in cursing. It means empty usage. How often have you brought the Lord's name into something in an empty and vain manner? Charles Spurgeon wrote, He will sink surely, sink infamously, sin never to rise again. The haters of the humble are among the worst of men, for their enmity is unprovoked. They may hope to rise by oppressing or duping the simple-hearted, but such conduct will prove their certain destruction sooner or later. It is the lowly Lord of the lowly who pronounces this condemnation, and he is soon to be the judge of the quick and the dead. It is better to be ever learning, to never truly know it all, than to be conceited and misleading. It's, it, it's honestly alarming when a preacher gets in a pulpit and leads with sarcasm over and over and over again using arrogance to, to bury his lack of knowledge or maybe even arrogance to portray his great wealth of knowledge. It presents a stumbling block to the meek, to the humble, to the lowly that we're called to teach, that we're called to tend to. If you go back to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, we don't see blessed are they who are like Chandler from Friends. Blessed are they who are sarcastic. Blessed are they who can get a laugh. And there's a time and place for humor. Well, when it comes to souls, there's nothing funny about hell. There's nothing funny about this valley. Nothing funny about the worm that dieth not, the fire that's never quenched. Nothing funny about dying eternally. And there's really nothing funny about living eternally. These things face every one of us. Christ is telling us to deal with our sins. And he declares in these accounts to deal with our sins drastically, to deal with our sins completely, to deal with our sins, hear me now, mercilessly. We treat our sins, our own sins, as some kind of pet we have to care for and gently break the bond with. I was preaching at Sefner last Sunday. I had said to them, it's as though we have a room in our home for these sins, one with a lock on it, so if the pastor comes over, we can lock it so he can't see them. But in that room, they have all the television they could desire, every streaming option, food delivery readily available 24 hours a day, because we work so hard to make sure our sin is comfortable. And when God is spoken of, we are most uncomfortable. Why? Same problem Cain had. Sin lieth at the door. We hear that phrase and it's easy to think, well, sin's out there. Not that door. It's one of these interior doors that aren't even real wood. That's hollow. He's right on the other side. He can hear you. Are you going to pray while sin can hear you? Are you going to lead your home in devotion while sin can hear you? Sin is ever near. Sin is so, so dear. Who would repent of something you've worked so hard to care for and conceal? Be rid of it. Christ says drastically, completely, mercilessly, the way a surgeon deals with the cancerous growth so that it not be a stumbling block for the work we have to do. 
Why will the church not experience revival? Because each of us has a special room, a special place in our homes and hearts for sin. We won't have revival until we've repented. And we won't, have, we won't repent until we're done with it. Why are there still lost in our homes? Because they know where that sin room is. They know how sin thrives and lives. They see us water it, care for it, pet it, caress it. They know what the exchange rate is for our time and service to the Lord, and they know what we will never give up. Those affected by the work and us in doing the work, we must not play with sin or delay getting rid of it. Drastically, completely, mercilessly. We must face our sins honestly. We must confess them. We must forsake them. Who will take their sins and put it on the altar of Molech? Who will see their sins melt and perish before their very eyes? This is what leads a nation to do it with their children instead. We're not willing to give up our Las Vegas. We're not willing to give up those things that please us so. You want to pursue after God, you have to die unto self. The parable in Matthew is the last thing I have here. Just, just a few notes on it. We'll, we'll preach on it here soon. If you compare verse 11 with Luke 19, verse 10, in Matthew 18, 11, it says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And Luke 19, 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You'll note the phrase that is missing in Matthew 18, 11, that is there in Luke 19, 10, is to seek. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And in Luke 19, 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We're not to Luke 19 yet. We're going to come back to this parable on this sheep that the Lord pursues after. We're going to come back to it real soon. But I want you to pray over why is to seek missing? Who's in the crowd in Matthew 18 that's not in the crowd in Luke 19? What's the difference? What is the Lord teaching on here with sin? And what is he teaching on there in Luke 19? This is a year of teaching on discernment, and I don't, I don't know that the Lord's ever impressed upon me a, a more important subject. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, and even before I went to Florida, I could not escape the thought that I need to teach discernment. Uh, it's invaluable to the Christian, invaluable to the church member, uh, because that's how we make our decisions. It's not by me telling you that you're saved and you should join the church. It's not, you're, you're not waiting on me to tell you that you're saved. But some level of discernment is required of each and every one of us. And I pray, and I, and I pray that you'll pray with me, that the Lord will make these lessons clear, that he will strengthen the little children, myself included, that we'll be strong in the word of God. That when those tempters come to the door, they offer either the traditions of man or even their own pet sins, we would have the discernment of the word of God to know why it's wrong, not just that it's wrong. That our apologetics not be vain, empty uh, phraseologies such as landmarkism, Sovereign grace. These are important words. What do they mean? How are they used? That is my prayer for 2023.
Uh, as a result, as I've told some of the sisters already, I'm not going to travel as much in 2023. I think it has its place. I think it was beneficial to the mission work in 2022. Uh, but a lot of the folks that I went and preached for last year, I'm probably not going to go back this year. I need to be here. Steve's done a wonderful job in the times that I've been gone, but that's not necessarily what he's been called to. You've called me here to lead and feed the flock, and that's what I intend to do by the grace of the Lord. So you pray for me. Um, I don't think not traveling will be hard, um, but I have to give that testimony. I have to give that answer to these preachers as they call. And there needs to be an importance and a value set upon our time here together. Uh, and I pray, I pray that we'll be able to find that. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer.